Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. These concerns regularly bring us to examine core features of capitalism in the 21st century. Today, we turn to an issue on everyone's mind, inflation. The fact that current inflation rates are higher than they've been in decades weighs not only on households and businesses, it has also shifted the political landscape. And as we head into the 2022 midterms and then the 2024 presidential elections, understanding the deeper causes of and available remedies to inflation is of paramount importance. In this episode, Samir Santi and Josh Mason offer their insights on some of the big questions. If strong demand has contributed to rising prices, what role have constraints on the supply side played? Why have interest rate hikes become the textbook response to inflation? And what other remedies should be on the table? We think you'll find their grappling with these issues helpful to understanding the political economy of contemporary inflation. I'm really just thrilled to have Professor Josh Mason, who some of you may know on Twitter as J.W. Mason, joining us today. We're going to be discussing what has without question been the most talked about economic issue of the last year, which is, of course, inflation. Uh, what it is, why it's happening, what we should do about it, and so on. Most of the chatter about inflation on TV, in the business press, and elsewhere treats it like a technical problem one that only experts can really understand and that only experts can actually address. And there's no doubt that there are some complex dimensions to the problem. We're going to try to unpack it today. But really, as I think this discussion will show, inflation, and especially what we're supposed to do about inflation, is more of a political issue than a technical problem. It's a political issue that forces us to make choices based on social priorities. And economic policy always raises these kinds of things. It always raises the question of who gets what from whom or you know, put another way, who benefits and who pays. And as I think our discussion today is going to show, there are a few things that express this more clearly than the politics of inflation. I've for a long time been preoccupied by the way these politics of inflation affect working people. And there's hardly anyone I've learned more from about this subject than, than Josh Mason. Josh is an associate professor of economics at John Jay College at CUNY, where he helps to run a really exciting master's program in heterodox economics. And if anyone is interested or knows anyone who's interested in understanding 
economics in a, in a different kind of way, in a way you're going to hear about more today. I really encourage you to check it out. You can learn more about it at johnjeconomics.org. Josh also, you know, I mean, he's a prolific author. I don't know how he writes as much as he does, but he runs a terrific blog at jwmason.org. He tweets at jwmason as well and has regular and very clear and accessible columns in a variety of venues like Barron's and Jacobin. So Josh, thank you so much for being with us today. And I think to kick us off, it might be helpful to get some basic definitions on the table because this is a kind of complex issue. So to start, could you perhaps explain what precisely we mean by the term inflation? You know, the headlines tell us inflation's at a 40-year high, but for working people, a rising cost of living isn't exactly new. Housing costs, for instance, have been climbing for years. And meanwhile, the price of all kinds of financial assets from stocks to cryptocurrency have been soaring. So what distinguishes the recent inflation we've experienced from some of these other trends? Well, as you say, it's it's not straightforward. You know, the definition of inflation that people are sort of familiar with is, is a period of rising prices. But that immediately invites the question, which prices? Because there are a lot of prices in the economy and they do not all move in lockstep. So when we come to measure inflation, we're talking about a rise in the average price of things that a, a sort of representative household buys. But again, of course, we're not a representative household. Different people buy different things. And there are, again, a lot of things in that consumption basket, as economists call it. And so you have to somehow come up with an average price increase for all of these very different types of goods, not all of which have prices that are easy to see. There are actually a lot of different ways of doing this. So on the one hand, you know, we're not including financial assets when we measure inflation. We're not including stocks or cryptocurrency. We're not including interest. We're not including a lot of things that people actually do spend money on. We're only including goods and services that people buy for their own use. But we're also including some things that aren't goods and services. For instance, the biggest single item in the consumer price index, the biggest single piece of that index is what's called owner's equivalent rent. Now, this is not a price that anybody pays. What it is, is an estimate by the Bureau of Labor Statistics of how much it would cost a homeowner to rent their home if, if they were renting it. And computing this is, is a fairly complicated process, but it's not a price that anybody's actually paying. Now, it's absolutely true that housing costs are going up, and this is a real source of hardship, and, and as you say, a long-standing problem in this country, not a problem the last couple of years. But that is not necessarily being well captured in the inflation statistics that we see, because again, most people, uh, you know, are not renters. Most people in this country are homeowners. And so coming up with what their sort of inflation is in housing inflation is, is not, is not straightforward. And then you've got things like healthcare, you know, a big sector of the economy that we might call social consumption. We have sort of a fiction in a lot of our statistics that everything that people get for their own use is something they purchase themselves. Our economy is much more socialized in some ways than we and our, our national statistics want to acknowledge. And so we have big parts of the economy, again, healthcare, but other, other things that somebody else is paying for. So how do you capture that in, in the inflation? statistics. And there's no straightforward answer. And in fact, there are different ways. So for instance, we have the consumer price index, which is the one that gets the most attention, the one that has gone up by over 8% over the past year, as we all know. But there's also a personal consumption price deflator. Traditionally, the Fed actually considers a little better gauge of, of tendencies in the economy, which doesn't always move with the CPI. In fact, today, it's it's significantly lower. You know, it's, it's, it's 6% and change over the past year rather than 8%. So that doesn't get the headlines, but it's not obvious that the, the way you did the average in one case is better than the way you did the average in the other case. The critical takeaway from this, I think, is not the technical details of this, but the fact that there is not a thing out there that is just inflation. It is a statistical calculation that is very complicated that somebody has to make that a lot of assumptions and choices go into. And depending how you make those choices and assumptions, you're going to come up sometimes with quite a different number. 
Thanks for that, Josh. I mean, I know we said at the outset we were going to simplify this problem. Maybe we begin the process of simplification by complicating a little bit. Let's focus for a moment on that part that is new, right? You, you mentioned manufactured goods that have historically been falling and suddenly they're rising. And I think it may be worth just digging into, you know, why has that turn occurred? You know, I mean, one term we've all become acquainted with over the past year and a half or two years is supply chains. And many people, you know, including much of the Biden administration has attributed our situation in large part to disrupted supply chains. On the other hand, there are, you know, plenty of critics of the administration who focused on the effect the stimulus programs have had on the total level of demand in the economy. And then there are some other interpretations out there. So could you walk us through the competing ways of making sense of why there is something new? going on. And, and also, and importantly, explain the stakes of this debate, because each of these interpretations comes with political and policy related implications. So can you just clarify all that for us? All right. So we've got these two competing stories, supply and demand. Now, in some ways, they're almost the same story looked at from different points of view, because you could say the price of this thing is going up because people are trying to buy more of it than businesses can make. Or you can say the price is going up because businesses can make less than people want to buy. So you might say supply demand there. It's like two halves of a scissors. You know, you, you can't say which blade of the scissors cut the paper. It's the two of them together. And, and some, you know, you could say in a certain sense, supply and demand are two sides here. Car prices go up because people want to buy more than car manufacturers can sell or prices go up because they can't sell as many as people want to buy. Same thing. But it's not actually the same thing when you think about it a little more. And the reason is, or at least we don't think of them in the same way because we tend to think most of the time that the sort of productive capacity of the economy is kind of rising steadily over time. And so historically, people have said, well, if prices suddenly start rising, that's much more likely because there's been a big surge in spending versus there's suddenly been a lack of, of capacity to produce stuff. Because historically, we don't suddenly lose our ability to produce things, but we do have things, you know, developments in the economy that make people want to spend a lot more money. So historically, we've tended to think, okay, you're going to see, if you see a big short-term, you know, rise or fall in prices, it's much more likely to be coming from the demand side. But of course, these are not normal times. We actually have a very clear disruption in our ability to produce things and get them to where people want them in the past couple of years. And I think it's it's really kind of amazing when you listen to the, the Lawrence Summers and, and Jason Furman's and the people on that side of the debate who talk as if the only thing that's happened in the last two years is we had a big surge in federal spending. And as if that was like, the, that was what happened. It's like, you know, I mean, other, other than that, Mrs. Roosevelt, what about the play? Well, there was a play going on and, and you know, it was called the global pandemic. And it was extremely consequential. So you've had a huge disruption and it's not abstract. We can point to very specific things. Auto prices were a huge part of the rising in prices over, you know, last year, they sort of stabilized. They aren't coming down though. They're, and so if we're looking at a longer time frame, still a big piece of inflation, we know exactly what happened. The auto manufacturers in, in 2020 saw a deep depression on the horizon. They thought nobody was going to be buying cars for an extended period of time, and they didn't order semiconductors and other essential components. And there's a long lag. These, these are very specialized you know, pieces of electronics. You can't buy them off the shelf. You order them from the factory years in advance, and they have a whole process for, for producing them. And once you've, you've, you've halted that, you can't turn on a dime. Auto production in this country 
collapsed and it can't be brought up again very quickly. It's not that people were buying a lot more cars. They weren't. But the auto production in this country collapsed and the ability to bring in a lot more cars from the rest of the world could not fill the gap. So that's why car prices went up. It's not a mystery. And you can point to that with a lot of other, other categories of manufactured goods. We can see very clearly the interruptions um, in supply. And then, you know, more recently, we've had this war in Ukraine, which has boosted energy prices and boosted food prices. And one thing, I, I think there's been some interesting research recently, um, you know, is that we probably understate the importance of energy for broad-based inflation, because the standard thing that, you know, the statistics do is they say, well, we're going to have core inflation. We're going to take out energy. We're going to have to take out food. And that makes sense because those prices do go up and down a lot. Okay, food is mostly something final good. You eat it. That's the end of the story. But a lot of energy is not consumed by households. Energy is an input for almost every kind of industrial process and to a lesser extent by you know, other businesses as well. And so the impact of energy prices on broader prices, it seems clear, is much bigger than what you just see if you focus on energy prices in isolation. And so there's no question, you know, that's contributing to the broader, broader rise in price, especially, as I said, manufactured goods where energy is a big part of the story. And then the broader supply disruptions. I think, I think the case is just unambiguous. You know, another way of looking at it is this. If you look at, if you try to measure, and there's a lot of a lot of tricky things, but if you try to measure what we call real GDP, in other words, some sense the, the, the actual basket of goods and services that people are buying, and you look at that in early, early part of this year, and then you say, okay, let's compare this to what it would have been if the trend, you know, before the pandemic had just continued, if the amount of stuff we were buying just kept rising at a steady pace. Well, the answer is, as of early this year, we were still below that trend. And yet prices were going way up. So it's, it's very hard to explain how the problem could be people buying too much, people demanding too much, if people are actually buying less than in a sort of baseline scenario. That it's just much, much easier to explain that if you say, well, the problem is people are trying to buy more or less the same amount, but businesses cannot produce the same amount. And then, then prices go up. I think if we're arguing between supply and demand, it's just unambiguously the case that supply is right. If the question is, why are we having inflation versus a sort of baseline, no pandemic kind of, kind of alternative? That said, it's also true, and I don't think we should deny it, that if we had less spending in the economy, we would probably have less inflation. It's incredible how we avoided a deep recession. If you compare this experience, anybody who remembers that sort of apocalyptic feeling, that sense of doom back in early, mid-2020, obviously the economy shutting down. If you lived in New York City, you were hearing ambulances every night. It was, it was scary. But also the economic statistics, the huge number of people who were losing their jobs. A lot of us, I certainly believe we're going to see a mass wave of evictions. We're going to see a surge in homelessness and hunger. We're going to see an economic catastrophe. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen. You know, I was looking at an incredible number, the, the number of people who the U.S. Department of Agriculture describes as food insecure, you know, severe food insecurity. You don't have enough to eat. You go to bed, you didn't get enough to eat that day. It's, it's not very many, fortunately, in the U.S., you know, 4% in that worst category or so. But in 2007, it shot up by like 50% in just a couple of years. You know, you went from 4% of people to 6%. It's still a small number, but it's a lot more kids going to bed hungry every night. And that was because of a financial catastrophe and the mismanagement of that catastrophe by the Obama administration, by people like Larry Summers, who said, oh no, the stimulus is too big. We can't risk that. We've got to be cautious and conservative here. We didn't do that this time around. Somehow or other, we actually spent enough money to fill the economic hole created by COVID and maintain people's incomes. And as a result, hunger, the number of people who said they didn't get enough to eat, it just went down. There was no spike in evictions. There was no economic catastrophe, you know, and that's wonderful news. It's also, of course, the case. It means that people have more money to spend than they would have in that other scenario. If you had a mass wave of homelessness and evictions, 
I think rents would be lower. I think it's true. You know, if, if enough people were going hungry, I think food prices would be lower. So in that sense, if you want to blame demand, if you want to blame the stimulus, I think you can logically say, yes, if we had not done that stuff, we would have less inflation. We'd still have high inflation because a lot of it is coming from abroad. A lot of it is energy prices that aren't really set in the US, but we would probably have less. But I think that claim, first of all, is it's different from the claim that high demand is the reason we have inflation in the first place. It's different from making that the starting point of the story. You can say, given all these supply disruptions, given the pandemic, if we'd also had a big fall in demand, we would have had less inflation. But that doesn't mean the inflation is the under un, the underlying source of the inflation's demand. And then, of course, there's the trade-offs, and that's what people don't want to talk about. They treat inflation as if it's just the absolute be-all and end-all of economic policy. That's sort of our elite discussion. But in fact, you have to say, well, maybe we could have had one or two, three points less of inflation. How many hungry children is that worth? How many, you know, shuttered businesses? How many people kicked out of their homes? And the mainstream doesn't want to have it, but that's that's the conversation we should, we need to be having. Yeah, and it really is extraordinary how absent that aspect of the demand interpretation is from all of this mainstream discussion about it. And speaking of the sort of elite framing of the problem. Demand centers prompt figures prominently. You mentioned Larry Summers, who was a you know prominent Democratic economic policy official in the Clinton and Obama administrations. Jason Furman was the chair of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. These aren't right-wing figures, right? These are pillars of the Democratic Party's economic orthodoxy. And so moving kind of towards, you know, the world that they inhabit, let's talk about the Federal Reserve a little bit. Thus far, the principal response to the inflation that we've seen has been higher interest rates from the Federal Reserve. So first of all, can we just establish what is the Federal Reserve? You know, maybe people have heard about it, but I think it's quite opaque to a lot of folks. And second, why is the Federal Reserve raising interest rates? What's the point of doing this, given everything you've said? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The Federal Reserve is the central bank of the United States. It's the institution that sits at sort of the apex of the financial system. Today, it's really part of the federal government. Historically, it occupied a somewhat more ambiguous position with more of a role for private banks. People even called it, you know, the bank's private branch of government. It's actually an interesting history because, you know, in some ways, if you go back to the 19th century, the U.S. didn't have a central bank and a big demand from a lot of people on the left, from the populace in particular, was that you needed to manage the currency, that this sort of unmanaged gold standard really actually created crises. It was very bad for debtors. It was very bad for anybody who had to borrow money. It ended up empowering the biggest banks like, you know, JP Morgan. And so you needed a public institution to manage the currency. And the Fed that we ended up with, in some ways, is sort of a compromise. And it has, it has a, it's a response to that. So I think we want to be careful and, and not treat the Fed as whole, as a vil. The insulation of the Fed from democratic accountability is a problem. But we do want an institution to manage the, the financial system, the banking system. The problem is that we've also now task that same institution with managing the macro economy, which it's really historically was not considered to be its primary responsibility and which it's not very well suited to do. So the, the notion, and, and again, this is not in the scale of things, it is a relatively recent notion. So the notion is that you have an interest rate, an overnight interest rate that banks, one bank charges another bank. You need money. Traditionally, it's, it's literally a 24-hour loan. You've got to settle with another bank. You don't have the reserves on hand to make the settlement. You borrow. And the interest rate that you pay to make that borrowing is called the federal funds rate, and it is effectively set by the Federal Reserve. And for you know, since the 1990s, but really only since the 1990s, we've had the idea that this one tool, this one interest rate, is all that we need to manage 
economic growth, inflation, unemployment. It's, it's really kind of crazy when you think about it. You know, it, the law doesn't say that. The mandate of the Federal Reserve doesn't really say they should be managing inflation or unemployment at all. Their mandate is that they should be stabilizing the growth of money and credit. They should be stabilizing the banking system. And they should do that in a way that is consistent with, you know, full employment and stable prices. But there's an important nuance there because instability, disruptions that don't come from the banking system really historically would not have been considered the feds to manage. But again, over, you know, since the 90s, we've sort of had this consensus, not just in the US, but all over, uh, you know, the world with relatively smaller exceptions that the central bank using this one instrument can do this. And so the idea, you know, what a textbook will tell you, and and this is not a left-wing view, this is what a, a textbook will tell you, is you raise that interest rate, okay, banks are paying more to borrow from each other. So they're going to charge more for other kinds of loans, they're going to charge more for borrowers. And in particular, they're going to charge more for people, businesses borrowing to make investment. Because, you know, the big thing that debt finances is new investment. Mortgages for households that are going to buy houses too. So you have, it's more expensive to borrow to do that stuff. Okay, you have less investment spending. It means less demand in the economy, less spending and less employment. Businesses hire people to make stuff. They're making less stuff. They hire a few people. Fewer people hired means more unemployment. And this is an interesting feature, a sort of, in a sense, a bit of the, the radical critique, you might say, that's worked its way into the mainstream, is the idea that wages are then set in a sort of bargaining process. It depends on who's got more power, who's got more options. When businesses, like today, are desperate to hire, when they have unfilled openings, they'll scramble and they'll offer people higher wages to hold the employees they have and to lure people away. Wages will rise. When there's, you know, when Walmart announces they've got three openings for cashiers and, and there's 200 people people lined up in the parking lot, well, they can pay those people as little as they want. When there's a lot of unemployment, a lot of job seekers and not many openings, wages go down. So, okay, so this is the textbook story. And when wages go down, the story is lower wages get passed on to lower prices. Businesses are basically setting their prices as a markup over the wage costs. So business that can hire more cheaply sells more cheaply, and that's how prices go down. Now, there's a lot of extra sort of elaboration that goes on top of that around expectations and so on. But but that is the fundamental story. The fundamental story is the way that the Fed controls inflation is by making it harder for businesses to borrow. So businesses don't want to invest. So there's less employment. So wages go down. That's that's it. That's the story. And honestly, I think Jay Powell, you know, whatever you say about him, he's been pretty upfront about that in a lot of his appearances before the press over the past six months. He's been very clear that the way he is going to control inflation, he thinks, he hopes, is by forcing workers to accept lower wages. So that's, you know, that's how it's supposed to work. So, you know, obviously, from our point of view, we might ask two questions about that. One is, does it even work? Does it actually deliver lower prices in a reliable way? And two, isn't there some better way of doing this? You know, so I think we could we could talk about either of those questions. But obviously, I, I personally think the answer is it doesn't work very well, even on its own terms. And we definitely could could find alternative ways of solving this problem. Yeah, why don't we actually stick with just, I want to move to another aspect of the Fed, but maybe just a little bit more about why you don't think it'll work. I think that would be interesting to hear. Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of steps, you know, that the process I described is is a fairly complicated one. It's kind of a Rube Goldberg machine. And there's a lot of things that have to happen. You know, the Fed raises the rates the banks are paying. Or these days, it's the interest on excess reserves. We don't need to get into that. It's the same thing. Short-term interest rate facing banks 
Do they lend less? Do they raise the interest rates to their customers? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. There's reasons they might not. Do businesses, when they're making investment decisions, really think a lot about the interest rate? Basically, anytime you go out and you ask, you know, a corporate executive who's who handles investment decisions, and people do this sometimes, you know, economists, most of the time, they're just playing with models. But once in a while, they actually go out <laughs> and ask people some questions. And, you know, you ask them, you know, what do you think about when you make investment decisions? They never say interest rates. They never say interest rates. They say, we have a fixed return. We want 10%, or we want it to pay back in three years. Or maybe we have a fixed budget and we look for the best stuff we can do within that budget. They don't say we, we look at the current interest rate. And then, of course, employment is changing for other reasons besides what interest rates and investment are doing. And wages are changing for other reasons. I mean, the last step, high unemployment and slower wage growth, I think that's the most solid one in the whole chain. But it's still not 100%. And then, of course, the chain after that, step after that, do prices just move with wages one for one? Well, we know that's not the case. We know very clearly that's not the case. If that were the case, real wages would never change. But as we know, sometimes in booms, wages rise faster than prices. Other times, like right now, prices rise faster than wages. So there's clearly other stuff going on than just passing on your wage costs. So every step in this is pretty questionable. And then if you sort of look at the statistical evidence, well, what do we know about what happens historically? You know, if you look at the Fed's own models, they say oh, it does have an effect, but it takes about two years to get to get sort of its peak effect. So when they're raising interest rates now, that's going to be reducing spending and employment sometime in mid-2024, which, you know, we have no idea, honestly, if we're still even going to have an inflation problem then. Maybe the economy's in a recession. So you're, you're, you're trying to steer a ship or a car on a highway, and you've got an enormous lag between when you move the steering wheel and, and when the vehicle actually changes direction. You're probably going to crash quite a bit. And then besides that sort of case, there's other cases where it's hard to say it has any effect at all. And honestly, to me, that's sort of a reason for optimism right now. You know, if you look at the last round of tightening by the Fed, raising interest rates, tightening is the jargon for raising interest rates. So the last time the Fed was raising interest rates, 2015, 16, 17, they stopped shortly before the pandemic. And then you say, okay, what happened to employment during that period? Employment just went up. There was no, no noticeable effect on anything. Now, to be sure, if they raise interest rates enough, yeah, they can create a crisis. And maybe it's not about new borrowers. Maybe it's not about investment. It's about all the people who already have debt, all the households, all the businesses, local governments that already have debt and roll it over and are now paying a much higher interest rate and can't service that debt and go into some kind of financial distress and have to dramatically cut back spending. I mean, yeah, the Fed can bring that outcome about if they raise interest rates enough. But it's not clear that, that if they don't raise them enough to provoke a crisis if they're necessarily going to have any effect on, on the real economy at all. And honestly, as I say, there's a lot of historical evidence that they don't. Even Larry Summers, you know, one thing I do agree with him on, and he, you know, he would say, you can't get a slowdown without a recession. You're not going to get a, you're not going to get that nice smooth landing. You're going to get either a crisis and recession or nothing. Historically, I think that's what we see. The idea that the Fed, and this is, it's one of these crazy ideas that I think nobody believes until they've taken a lot of economics classes, but the idea that the Fed, by tweaking this one interest rate that banks are charging each other can steer the whole complex economy. This enormous division of labor with all these different decision makers can steer it in this precise way. It's just kind of nuts if you think about it. And I don't think there's a shred of statistical or historical evidence that they can actually do that. Yeah, thanks for that. You know, we, we've had on this program before Benjamin Braun, who, along with his oh, co-author, yeah, he's, he's terrific. And his co he and his co-author, Leah Downey, once referred to what they call the Federal Reserve's holy trinity, which is independence, independence from the democratic process, focus on inflation, this particular kind of inflation that we've been talking about, not all the other inflations, and 
reliance on a short-term interest rate. And I think the allusion to divinity that, that the, this notion of a holy trinity contains, it speaks to exactly what you're talking about. That the idea that something like a soft landing can be achieved, that you can actually get this under control without causing serious unemployment, or that there's a way to kind of steer the ship just speaks to, as you said, how many economics courses you have to take to really believe it. But let's, but you know what they do believe, and it probably is the case that if you raise unemployment enough, it will have some appreciable effect. And so at least in their minds, the objective of all of this is to get somewhere close to there where unemployment does go up at least enough to weaken workers' bargaining power so that wage, wages stop Absolutely. rising and prices stop. That, that's what they're trying to achieve. And eventually they will get there, but not necessarily quickly or in a controlled way. Right, exactly. And so we'll get back to what you mentioned earlier on about why maybe isn't there some other way we could do this? We'll come back to that and you know what that means for you know workers and union struggles and so on. But before that, I want to just get to one other aspect of the Federal Reserve. Um, and that's this. We're seeing interest rates increased, but the actual number is still pretty low, right? We're at what, two and a half, three, maybe we're going to, they say we're going to get up to 4% compared to periods in the past in the 1970s when it got up to 20 or so percent. And, and of course, before a year ago, interest rates were very low and had been maintained at very low levels, going back to at least the financial crisis in 2008. And, you know, many analysts and critics of the Federal Reserve have pointed out that this may have problems of its own, maybe even contributing in some ways to some of what we're experiencing. So they point specifically to the Federal Reserve's policies beginning around 2009-2010 that were called quantitative easing. And they say that this quantitative easing and the general commitment to low interest rates after 2008 and continuing for over a decade, fueled Wall Street speculation on financial assets, introduced all kinds of risks into the economy, and and contributed to the intensification of economic inequality. You've got a more nuanced take on all of this, on quantitative easing and on the Fed's monetary policy, which is their management, all of this stuff more generally than some of these critics. So can you explain, just kind of unpack this notion of quantitative easing and you know the general approach your Fed has had for the last dozen or so years, and talk a bit about what you make of it all. Yeah, I mean this this is an interesting set of questions, and unfortunately not an easy one. But I think my personal view is the impact of quantitative easing has been overstated for good and for for ill. You know the notion is the Fed is buying bonds and thereby putting more money into into the economy or into the banking system. The problem is, you know, money, <laughs> money, we think, oh, it's, you know, it's currency. It's But money is a very amorphous thing in a modern economy. A lot of assets can serve as money. Money is created and, and destroyed in all kinds of transactions. The Fed has no monopoly on that. And the truth is, if you tell a bank, I'm going to take so many billion dollars of your short dated treasury bonds and give you so much additional reserves for that, you haven't necessarily done much of anything at all because those treasury bonds are essentially money already. They already function very much like money within the banking system. There's very little difference between the asset that the the Fed is buying and the money that it's paying for it. And so the actual impact is just is going to be pretty negligible. I I think with a lot of QE, the best you can say is maybe you shift the structure of interest rates around a little bit. If if you're buying, you know, long bonds and you're selling, giving them reserves or other short dated stuff, maybe you push down long interest rates a little bit at the margin. But I think the notion that, that the Fed is pumping all this money into the economy 
economy is not really a, a useful way of thinking about it in a modern economy. At one time, perhaps we had a world where your money was money. I'm not sure we ever really lived in that world, but you can imagine where there's gold and gold is money and nothing else gets used for money. And you put more gold out there, there's more money. We don't live in that kind of world at all. The, the moneyness of all kinds of assets is kind of a variable. A lot of assets are sort of like money and sort of not. Money is created by all kinds of institutions. So the Fed does not really put money into the economy. They can maybe, what they do is push around the prices of one asset relative to another asset. But I don't, I don't think QE even did very much of that. I, I think it was basically taking water, you know, the right wing analogy that people like to use, I think is pretty accurate here, where you got the bucket and you're taking water from one end of the swimming pool to the other. Yeah. I just don't think, I don't think QE had much of an impact. In the immediate aftermath of 2007-8 crisis, where they were buying the bad assets that the banks didn't want, that was a different story. But when but what we think of as QE, where the treasury debt that they're buying, nah. I think the bubbles question also, I think low interest rates lead to higher asset prices in general. I'm not sure they reliably lead to asset bubbles. I think asset bubbles take some other ingredients as well. And I think if we look at the big historical major destructive asset bubbles, they weren't necessarily in periods where interest rates were especially low. Mm. Interest rates were not particularly low in the late 20s. In fact, at the height of the stock market bubble, they were quite high. In fact, arguably, that was part of the problem is that if you expect a 10 or 20 or 30% return on an asset, you don't care what the interest rate is. If you're trying to actually expand a business or build a home, you do. So you actually, in a way, the high interest rates shift more activity into the, the bubble. So I don't think the relationship between low interest rates and bubbles is as straightforward as sometimes people make it out to be. I think if we want to blame the Fed for bubbles, we should much more focus on the fact that they don't do their job of supervision, that they're supposed to be responsible for managing the banking system, and that that means should include an element of oversight and asking what are these, what kind of assets are these institutions holding, and what kind of terms are they making loans on? And we don't need high interest rates to, to manage bubbles. We actually need a better regulated financial system, and I, I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. That's about the clearest explanation of QE, which QE, again, quantitative easing, it's a term many people may have heard, but if you've never heard it explained before, I don't, I don't know, that's about as good as it gets. You know, we're, we've been talking in here a little bit about the Federal Reserve and sort of high finance, but ultimately, we're the School of Labor and Urban Studies, and we want to figure out what all this means for working people. And this issue, and in, in particular, the way that, that the Federal Reserve is responding to it, and the way that the issue is framed by certain elite economic analysts, it all bears on working people in really profound ways. Inflation, of course, even in the first place is a problem for people because it, prices are rising. But as we know, as we've been discussing, housing prices have been rising for a long time. A lot of our listeners are unionists, working people who are trying to figure out how we ought to respond to this. And as we've said, maybe the Federal Reserve's response isn't the best way. But both in bargaining and at the larger political level, this is a question that everyone's trying to wrestle with. So can you just talk a little bit about how those of us committed to, you know, working class political and social struggles ought to respond in the immediate term, insofar as inflation might remain a problem for a little while, and in the future generally, if it does return? What should our answer be? Yeah, I think there's sort of three answers to that. The first one is that we want to be careful to be responding to inflation and putting forward a program in response to inflation that supports our larger agenda. You know, we don't want to be talking about overspending, partly, I think, because it's wrong, but also because it supports an agenda of austerity and wage cuts that we, we don't want. We don't like the Fed because we think it doesn't work, but also, again, because we don't want the cost of inflation to be borne on the back of working people, even if, if it did work. So we want an agenda that actually supports, and that means, I think, first of all, the supply stuff 
is very important because it says the solution here is investment. It's public investment. If we don't have enough port capacity, we need to build more port capacity. If energy prices are swinging all over the place, we need more investment in, in green energy and green jobs, which thankfully we are getting some of. If housing prices are going up, we need to build more housing. And obviously that's going to mean public housing and public money and also maybe land use reform, but we need to build more housing. So we need to frame the inflation problem in a way that supports our broader agenda and doesn't undermine it. That's, that's point one. I think, again, the investment piece is critical there. Point two, you know, I think is very simple, but we don't want to lose sight of it. The Fed is trying to raise unemployment and lower wage growth. That's what they're trying to do. And our demand on the Fed should be very simple. It should be, don't do that. Stop doing that. Let's not do some complicated bank shot where we need some conditions attached to bank bailouts or we need some other. We don't want unemployment to go up. We don't want wage growth to slow. We don't want it to be harder to find a job. We think a good economy is one where workers have an easy time finding a job and businesses have to scramble to find workers. It's good for working people, but it's also good in the long run for productivity growth. It's good for democratizing the workplace. It's good for innovation and growth. It's good. And we want it. And we want the Fed to stop trying to mess with it. That's all. Just stop doing that. And I, I think it's really that simple. And then, then the point three, you know, more on the ground level is don't get distracted by inflation. All these conversations, we're talking today, inflation, inflation, inflation. It's not the only thing happening in the world. And another very important thing that is happening in the world is that we do have very tight labor markets. We have very favorable conditions for workers who are bargaining with employers. And I think there's no question that's why people are organizing at fast food restaurants and Amazon warehouses. Not the only reason. There's a lot of heroic struggle and long-term preparation and a cultural shift and a lot of other things. But it is very favorable terrain to be fighting on. And we don't want to lose sight of that. Organizers I've talked to, they say, you know, you don't need to tell people that everybody knows that their boss is treating them like crap and that their job sucks. And you don't need to tell people. What you need to tell people is there's actually an alternative. It could be better. You can actually do something about that. And I think we should we should not lose sight that the current economic moment is one that is favorable for efforts to, to actually confront your boss. Collectively, we hope through organizing, but frankly, also individually, you could, you could quit. You could, you know, go somewhere else. And, and we want to, we don't want to be losing sight of that moment. We don't want to treat this as just a crisis of inflation because that is not the only thing happening in the world. And we don't want to miss the opportunity that comes from this extraordinarily strong labor market. Well, less. That's such an important note to kind of like tie this all together on, right? Is the other side of inflation right now, at least, is that we have conditions that we haven't had in a long time for workers who are struggling. And, and I, you know, I really think that point can't be emphasized enough. Josh, it's been such a pleasure having this discussion with you. I mean, hardly anyone who can break down this opaque stuff as clearly and as accessibly as Josh Mason. JWMason.org, JWMason on Twitter, JohnJEconomics.org for anyone who wants to study this stuff at a higher level more extensively with brilliant people like Josh. Josh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up not only in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, but also in our journal, New Labor Forum. In fact, the current issue of the journal features a lead article by Samir Santi under the title, Who Pays for Inflation? You can find the article on our website at newlaborforum.cuny.edu where we encourage you to subscribe to the journal as well. And to learn more about the Reinventing Solidarity podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast.